Will you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 5, as we continue our studies in the book of Joshua. Some commentators are divided. Should it go to chapter uh, 6, verses, uh, verse 5, or should it just be chapter 5? Uh, it's not really that big of a deal, but I want to keep the Jericho uh, narrative all together. But certainly there is continuity between Joshua 5 and Joshua 6, uh, especially as we see the theophany, uh, the, the appearance of the commander of the army of the Lord. Uh, certainly that's still go. He's still speaking in chapter 6, verse 2, but I want to keep the Jericho narrative together. So we're just going to look at chapter 5 this evening. Uh, I'll begin reading out verse 1. So it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over, that their heart melted. And there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives for yourselves and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they'd come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord to whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers that he would give us a land flowing with milk and honey. Then Joshua circumcised their sons, whom he raised up in their place, for they were uncircumcised, because they had not been circumcised on the way. So it was when they had finished circumcising all the people, that they stayed in their places in the camp till they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore the name of the place is called Gilgal to this day. Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the fourteenth day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. And they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. Then the manna ceased on the day after they'd eaten the produce of the land, and the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, no, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take your sandal off your foot for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Amen. Well, Joshua is a huge transition in the history of Israel. We transition from the Pentateuch into the former prophets or the historical books or the Deuteronomistic history. It begins at Joshua, finishes at Kings, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, uh, and Kings. And the main emphasis of those books is how Israel goes into exile. And we see the historical decline of the people of God uh, based upon and founded upon uh, Deuteronomy. 
that covenant that God made with his people fleshed out in full, especially for that second generation and subsequent generations. Uh, we see the terms and conditions of the old covenant uh, throughout that book in more detail. That's why we did it first, because it's important uh, for the historical books that we started uh, in Joshua. Now, Joshua is positive for the most part. Again, according to Deuteronomy, if the people do what God says, life will be good in the land. If the people do not do what God says, life will not be so good in the land. So it's a conditional covenant, an external covenant, all about life in the land. And Joshua is positive. And the main purpose of the book uh, is God's promises fulfilled to Abraham. We see this in Joshua 21, verses 43 through 45. We see the land grant that God promised Abraham given to the people finally uh, as they've entered into that promised land. And so the structure of the book really can be framed around the land. Uh, we saw the last four weeks entering the land, chapters one through four. Today we start conquering the land, which goes through chapter 12, uh, then dividing the land, and then lastly retaining the land. So today we're going to start the conquering of the land. Uh, when we looked at the entering of the land, we saw God's promise to be with the people, especially to be with Joshua, uh, be strong and have good courage. He mentions that like a million times in chapter one. Uh, he says, I will be with you many times in chapters one uh, through four. But we saw in chapter two, Canaan's fear, as we see this remarkable confession from Rahab the harlot. And in the last two weeks, we saw God's mighty work with the crossing of the Jordan. So tonight... We see entering the land beginning in chapter 5, and God is preparing his people for battle, reminding them that they are the chosen race, and reminding them that he is the one who fights for them. Now, I always like to try and figure out a problem. Usually there's a problem connected with the chapters, the verses that we look at. I think the problem is more implicit, and the problem, I think, comes from uh, what is said concerning the first generation. You see, the first generation was cut off from the promises. The first generation was cut off because they did not do what the Lord said. The first generation uh, did not obey the voice of the Lord God Most High. Now, that's important when it comes to the, uh, uh, the, the token of circumcision. Certainly, you can, if you disobey the covenant proper to circumcise, one can be cut off. But also, that's a uh, sign that if people disobey the covenants as a whole, they can be cut off. And that's an important lesson for all of Israel. It's an important reminder for that second generation that they shouldn't be like that first generation, that they should obey the voice of the Lord, their God, and trust in his ways. It doesn't matter how big the Anakim are, they can enter in and they're going to take that land for God fights for them. So the problem of being cut off, the problem of not being on the side of the Lord, that was a problem that could be for ones who do not obey the voice of the Lord God most high. So the problem of disobeying, but also the problem of not trusting, which was again uh, a big issue for that first generation as they came up out of the land of Egypt. So that I think is the problem implied, and we'll hopefully unpack some of that as we look at circumcision. But in Joshua 5, the Lord prepares the second generation for battle with a religious preparation and a holy theophany. So he's preparing them for battle. He's preparing them for holy warfare as they're going to be his instruments for judgment upon the people in the land of Canaan. But also we, he will give to them the land that he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob 400 years earlier. 
Uh, it's a momentous day in the history of Israel. I think I glance over Joshua 5 when I'm reading it in my devotions. I shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that either, but we do that. Uh, but Joshua 5 is a momentous moment uh, in the history of Israel. And God prepares them for battle uh, with uh, certain sacraments and also a holy appearing. And we'll look at this under two headings this evening. We'll first of all see the circumcision of the people, verses 1 through 12. Then secondly, we'll see the commander of the army of the Lord, verses 13 through 15. So the bulk of our time will be spent with that first portion, the circumcision of the people, and then we'll see the commander of the Lord's army. So let's first look at the circumcision of the people in verses 1 through 12. And notice we see the fear of the nations, the fear of Canaan, verse 1. So it was when all the kings of the Amorites were on the west side of the Jordan, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea. The emphasis is on the kings and their fearfulness and their fearing of what God had done. This again is in contrast uh, with that first generation. Uh, in Numbers chapter 13 and 14, we see that first generation fearful of the Anakim. Only Joshua and Caleb said, we must do what God has said. We can take it. The rest freaked out. Uh, but uh, in 1329, as the spies spy out the land, uh, we see some geography concerning who lived where. Verse 29, the Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. And throughout this retain, or, uh, conquering the land portion, there's a lot of repeats about how nations or Various peoples within Canaan were fearful. They were fearful. They were afraid. And so I think there's a contrast between the first generation. They were afraid. But now it's Canaan's turn. Canaan is afraid. Canaan is fearful. We had this affirmation from Rahab the harlot. She recognized that. And notice it's, uh, it says in verse 1, uh, these kings, they heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over. And the result was their heart melted and there was no more spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. And we saw in 424 that God was going to do a mighty work with that crossing of the Jordan. Two purposes we saw in 424. One, it was that Israel might fear the Lord, but also two, that the rest of the earth might know who God is. The rest of the earth might know where the mighty, the mighty hand of the God of Israel. Well, God does that very thing with that crossing of the Jordan. And a lot of what we see in verse 1 is similar to Rahab's confession in 2.11. She says, our hearts have melted, or Canaan's hearts have melted. We are fearful. And what she mentions there is the Red Sea. The Red Sea, we heard what God did with the Red Sea, how he parted it and they crossed over on dry land. Throughout Joshua 5 and even Joshua 4, he's been drawing our attention back to the Exodus on purpose. We see the beginning of God, the people, uh, uh, the people of God exiting, the inauguration, the salvation that comes by way of Exodus. In a lot of ways, we're seeing it come to completion. He brought them out of the land and now they're going to, uh, brought them out of the land of Egypt. Now they're going to enter into that land. They left and fled by way of a, uh, of a sea parting, and they cross over by way of the Jordan crossing. A new era is dawning in the history of Israel, and the allusions back to the Red Sea uh, is important. And so 
Rahab mentions the Red Sea. We saw in Joshua 4, he mentions the Red Sea in connection with the crossing of the Jordan. And here the crossing of the Jordan was what caused the nations, especially the kings closest to where they had encamped uh, when, they, when they crossed the Jordan. So they're fearful. Uh, they are afraid. Uh, their hearts have melted. Uh, things are looking good for the people of Israel. But they also need to be prepared for war. And they need a religious preparation. They need to be reminded who they are. They need to be reminded that they've been set apart by God most high. And this is what God does with this circumcision, with this sacrament, in a lot of ways, an old covenant sacrament for the people, a sign of them being set apart. So we see uh, in verses 2 and 3, the command and the obedience uh, at the time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives for yourself and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. When he says again the second time, we're going to see, uh, it's explained for us in the following verses, but that first generation, what he's referring to there with that second time, he's talking about how the first generation was circumcised when they came up out of the land of Egypt. And now the second generation, now that they're in the land, they are going to be circumcised. He's going to explain that. It's not as though the second generation was circumcised once and they're circumcised again. That's biologically impossible to happen. So it can't happen twice that way. So, uh, so that's what it means a second time there. So the first generation was circumcised. Now Israel as a whole is going to be circumcised again uh, as they enter into the land. And there's certainly a lot of connection between Passover and circumcision. In Exodus 12, uh, Moses, God says by way of Moses that uh, one who's not circumcised cannot partake of the Passover. And so they're going to have the Passover real soon here. Uh, but that can't happen unless they are circumcised. So again, our attention is being drawn back to that first Exodus. We're being drawn back there by the, by the Jordan crossing. We're being drawn back there by circumcision. We're being drawn back there by Passover as well. And Numbers 9 also speaks about the first Passover they have, uh, uh, they, the, the one-year mark after they come out, out of the land of Egypt. So circumcision is preparing them for that Passover. So God says time to do some circumcision. Uh, Joshua obeys in verse 3. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of foreskins, or Gibeath I don't know how to say that very well, but that's the place it's called. Uh, what a name to be called, the Hill of the Foreskins. And so Joshua obeys. He does what God says, as we've seen from Joshua, a faithful man. Uh, and then we see the explanation for why uh, in verses uh, four, through, uh, 4 through 7. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. I love how the Bible says that. It just tells you, here's what happens. I mean, uh, here's the reason why. Because we're pretty thick sometimes, so it's helpful to, uh, to have them explain it for us. All who came out of Egypt, who were males, all the men of war, now they're about to enter into battle, so men of war are important, had died in the wilderness on the way after they'd come out of Egypt. Okay, and then he goes on to explain why. Verse 5, for all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. You see, circumcision in a lot of ways is tied to the 
land. So they weren't circumcised right away, but circumcision was meant to be a, a token concerning life in the land. If I, if, if I may say as an aside, uh, you know, a, lot of, a lot of the times, uh, you know, as Baptists, we like to throw some shade or throw a little dig at our pedo baptist brothers and sisters and highlight the faulty comparison between baptism and circumcision. Well, ask them about Joshua 5. Was the second generation when they wandered in the wilderness, were they still the covenant community, even though they were not uh, circumcised? Uh, you see, there is, there is no connection in God's word between circumcision and baptism. The only place where we see the words circumcision and baptism together, as I highlighted, is in Colossians chapter 2. And it's talking about the circumcision made without hands. That is, spiritual circumcision um, uh, is the antitype to physical circumcision. Set apart outwardly, set apart inwardly. That's the blessing of the new covenant. We are set apart inwardly. And baptism, we, baptism is an outward sign of that inward work that God does. Uh, and certainly the old covenant backdrop to baptism were the ritual washings. That's why when John the Baptist comes on the scene, uh, the Pharisees aren't like, what are you doing? Because they've seen this before. They've seen it happen before. They've seen something like that before. Uh, and God, uh, uh, Christ, gives us the ordinance of the new covenant, uh, which is baptism. So that's just a bit of an aside uh, certainly, uh, these ones wandering in the wilderness were still part of the covenant community by birth. And how does one become part of the new covenant community uh, in the New Testament? By new birth. Not because of the faith of one's parents, but because of one's faith and one's regeneration. So that's just a bit of an aside, but that's an interesting thing. I remember I brought that up with the Pedro. He didn't know what to say when I, when I mentioned that thing. So I got him good with that one, with Joshua 5. But, um, but that's an interesting thing. Dr. Renahan pointed that out, and I thought that was an interesting observation. That's just a fun aside. Uh, but uh, uh, we see, again, uh, the, 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 we see why they have to do that. Uh, one thing it's important to highlight, too, that Pedro Baptists don't like to mention so there's a judgment aspect with circumcision, right? Genesis 17 speaks about this, speaks about this uh, when it is instituted, when it is given by God to Abraham as a sign. Uh, you see a lot of paedo-baptists like to say that there's, you know, one covenant of grace, which we agree, but it's administered in uh, two ways. And they like to say that the covenant of grace, the Abrahamic covenant is the covenant of grace. Um but the covenant of grace is God offering salvation to his elect. Now, the terms of the Abrahamic covenant are not that. There's the promise. The substance of, of the gospel is, is promised in the Abrahamic covenant, but it's not the same as. And there is, when you look at the terms of it, uh, there is a conditional works aspect. In Genesis 17, he says in verse 14, And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised, in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people, my covenant, for he has broken my covenant. So it is a breakable covenant. And this is also important in, in Exodus 4. Remember that weird scene where the angel of the Lord is going to come and kill one of Moses' sons? And then Zipporah does the, the circumcision. And what the angel of the Lord was coming to do was probably not coming to kill Moses, but coming to take his firstborn son because he was not circumcised. 
you see that he could have been cut off. And what's interesting is that is a precursor to Passover as well, that God passed over by blood. I know it's a weird section, but it's important in the context of sonship. Who is God's firstborn son? It is going to be Israel, not Pharaoh, or not Pharaoh. It's going to be Israel. It's not going to be Egypt. God chose the people of Israel out of all the nations, not Egypt, not any of the others. They were his chosen people. And the Passover signifies that very thing. God passed over them. And circumcision uh, is connected with that in that weird sort of story as the poor uses circumcision uh, to, so, so that God passes over uh, her son. But the point is, there is a breakable aspect of circumcision. He has broken my covenant. It's not the same as the covenant of grace, which can never be broken. Uh, but uh, it's not the same as the new covenant, which can never be broken. Uh, but it highlights that it is that one can um, be cut off and bring judgment. And that's also what is highlighted in Joshua 5. These ones were circumcised. The first generation was, the second generation was not. The first generation died while wandering. And even the wandering was a sign of being cut off, wasn't it? They weren't going to enter into the land. We see this in Numbers 14. As God warns them, God says to them, you are not going to enter into this land because of your unfaithfulness, because of your wickedness, and your sons shall be shepherds 40 years in the wilderness and bear the brunt of your infidelity until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness. The wandering was judgment upon them. The wandering was them being cut off that first generation because of their wickedness. If they had uh, if they had trusted them, what God said, they would have seen the land, but they did not. That's exactly how Joshua uh, is speaking. Now the Lord is speaking. For the children of Israel, they walked 40 years until they were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. They did not do what he said. They did not do trust in his promises. Instead, freaked out and said, let's go back to Egypt. Let's not go into the land. They're too big and too scary. Uh, whatever shall we do? And then notice what the uh, uh, what is said in verse um, six. Still, to whom the Lord swore that He would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers that He would give give us a land flowing with milk and honey. See, God's promises cannot be thwarted by the disobedience of people. God's promises will come to pass. The question is whether one uh, is going to be part of those blessings and part of those promises. Even as Calvinists, we believe God saves his elect. We don't know who those, those elect are, and that's why we preach the gospel and say, come and believe and you shall find mercy. Come and look to the Lord and you shall be saved. But if one does not believe on the Lord, we can confidently say, that they are going to die in their trespasses and sins. That God's promises will continue. God's blessings shall advance, uh, but they shall not be part of that very thing. God's covenant to Abraham still stands. That's the purpose of the book. The first generation did not get to partake with that. The second generation will, because God's promises cannot be thwarted. 
And the uh, reference there, land flowing with milk and honey, alludes back to Gen or Exodus 3. Again, the beginning, when God appeared to Moses at that burning bush and said, I have heard the cry of the people. I will bring them up out of the land. I remember the promises that I made, and I will bring them to the land flowing with milk and honey. It's just that first generation was cut off because they did not do what God said. And I think Davis gives a good application for us sometimes. Not that we can, you know, those who are part of the, the covenant of grace, those who believe, those who are the elect, shall be no wise cast out, shall never fall away. But even for us as the people of God, do you ever kind of look at the world around you and feel like nothing's working? <laughs> do you ever look at the church and see its supposed decline and think, what is God doing? Well, listen to Davis. You do this. I know you do it. I do it. We all do it. But this Davis kind of challenges us here. He says, sometimes we view our God as a false God. We think that he is surely frustrated and furrow-browed over the roadblocks and disobedience uh, posed to his, or uh, yeah, uh, brought to his bringing, uh, uh, posed to his bringing his kingdom. But the point of the text is that human rebellion cannot pack that sort of punch. Do you think that man's unbelief can annul God's promise? Brethren, the church of Christ is going to advance. Christ is on his throne, and we must remember that. Whatever we might see with our eyes, we must trust by faith God's promises. They shall advance. Not saying they're not problems. Not saying there isn't First Timothy 4. Men will come up and desire teachers that you know, uh, scratch their itch. But Christ's kingdom shall advance. Despite all that, Christ's kingdom shall go to the ends of the earth and his elect shall be saved. He's commanded us to be faithful and to preach his word. And we must trust in those promises. So God's promises cannot be thwarted by the disobedience of people. And then we see it uh, uh, happens, verse 7. Uh, the Joshua circumcised their sons whom he raised up in their place. So they kind of take over again. We see they've been cut off these ones to come in their stead for they were uncircumcised, but they had not been circumcised on the way. And then verses eight and nine, we see the reproach removed. So it was when they had finished circumcising all the people that they stayed in their places in the camp till they were healed. Uh, need to happen for military purposes as well. Uh, you can't have all the men of war uh, healed over in pain. So they need to heal in order to be able to engage in their battle. Uh, so that's also God provides uh, time to heal uh, as well. So they're circumcised. And then verse 9, the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And he explains the name of where they are in camp. Therefore, the name of this place is called Gilgal to this day. Same root as the word rolled away. And what he's emphasizing here is you who were once slaves, who were once a reproach of Israel, who were once uh, ridiculed, or sorry, a reproach of Egypt, ridiculed by Egypt, but you're no longer subject to them, but you are now heirs. You're no longer wandering in the wilderness, but you're in the Lord's promised land you have this reminder, you are the chosen race, the people set apart, the people that differ from the Canaanites, Hittites, Jebusites, Perizzites, whatever ites. You are the Lord's chosen 
people. And he's removed and rolled away that reproach that you have. You now have your land after wandering for 40 years. You now have the place that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. So they're circumcised. Reproach is rolled away. And then verses 10 through 12, uh, we see them partake of the Passover. And the emphasis here is not so much on the ritual itself, uh, but the place where it's done. Verse 10. Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. They're keeping the Passover in the promised land. Again, it's a momentous day in the history of Israel. Some 400 years uh, uh, prior when God made that promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, finally they've come in. 40 years of wandering, they've finally come in and they can partake of the Passover in the land. And again, we can't miss Israel's history alluding back to that first Passover. God passed over because they put blood of the lamb on the door frames. God passed over that their firstborn might not be killed, but Egypt or Egypt's firstborn might be killed. It was the final sign. It was the final, you know, death knell to Egypt that God showed his might and his power. These are my people. These are whom I've chosen. And it's another reminder here. They've entered into God's holy land. We're going to see that in verse 15 as well. God, uh, it was what made Israel different. God entered into covenant with them. God entered into a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God entered into covenant with Moses and Israel uh, through Moses. Uh, it was a sign that they were the people of God. So circumcision, Passover, it's all preparation before they enter into the, 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 the battle. That they are God's chosen people. And notice the land that they eat of, or the fruit, uh, the, the produce they eat of. Verse 11 and 12. Verses 11 and 12. And they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. Then verse 12, then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land and the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. In Exodus 16, we see the extraordinary giving of manna from heaven and quail. Uh, as well, not uh, Exodus 16, but God does give manna, God does give quail, but God provided for them extraordinarily as they were wandering in the wilderness, as they were wandering in a place of destitution, God provided for them. But the same God of the manna is the same God of the produce of the land of Canaan. Just because the manna ceased, it doesn't mean God is not providing for his people, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year we must recognize that god still provides and god gives even if it is just daily bread and we must recognize that our daily bread does come from him he gives us provision whether it's extraordinary but most of the time that in our lives it's going to be ordinary and i will say probably all of the provision we have in our life when it comes to temporal things is going to be ordinary and we must not forget that God is the God who gives us those things. Davis says, we must be aware of thinking that God is only in the earthquake, wind, and fire. Of thinking that manna, but not grain, is God's food. Most of God's gifts to his people are not dazzling, 
and gaudy, but wrapped in simple brown paper. Quiet provisions of safety on the highway, health of children, picking up a paycheck, supper with the family, all in, ordinary, all in an ordinary day's work for God. It's how God provides. You know, I don't always feel it, but God is providing for his people, and God is uh, giving us our daily bread. Uh, if you've listened to Davis any number of sermons on multiple occasions, he talks about the blessing of trash. That is, if you are able to take out the trash, it means you had provisions to eat to put in that trash. So next time you have to take out the trash, thank the Lord as you skip to the uh, skip to that container as you drop it in there. But God provides for us for our daily food, our daily provision. But more importantly, He provides for our spiritual needs. Our spiritual food is Christ the Lord. We have Christ who is the bread of life. We feed upon Christ in his word. We feed upon Christ with the Lord's Supper as a sacrament for us. Christ is our Passover lamb. Christ has the, was the one who was cut off for us that we might have our hearts circumcised in him. And we have the promise of everlasting life in him. And even when it comes to spiritual growth, it's not always dazzling, is it? It's not always this big, massive, huge experience, but it's day-by-day day growth. The nourishment we receive is not always observable. The growth that we grow in is not always immediate. Sometimes we have to look back and realize, wow, I prayed to God to help me with this sin or this issue, and God did help me. We must thank him for those things. But it's day-by-day, hour-by-hour faithfulness our god is faithful provides our daily temporal bread but also our daily spiritual bread and daily weekly bread in the lord jesus christ he is our god who provides because we are his people so that's the circumcision of the people let's then look secondly at the commander of the lord's army verses 13 through 15 and um total confession here as a kid, we used to sing a certain song about I marched in the Lord's army. What do you remember? Do you guys remember that one? I may never, what is it? Ride in the, march in the infantry. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that one. I don't remember it now, but I had that in my head as I was uh, thinking through all of this. But uh, notice we see uh, the commander of the Lord's army, verses 13 and 14. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho and he lifted his eyes and looked. And behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. Now, there are other places in the Bible where a sword drawn is a terrifying thing. Numbers 22 and with, I think, Balaam and First Chronicles 21 as well. And so we see Joshua. He's preparing to lead the people to dispossess the land. He's marching along and he sees someone there. And so he asks an important question. Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? This is a time of war. Are you with us or are you against us? And what we see here, and Henry points this out, is we see Joshua's faith in God's promise. Joshua's faith in God's promise from Joshua 1. God said to him, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now be strong and of good courage. So he's marching around, spud, looking at the land a little bit across from Jericho. Here's this guy with a sword, and we see his faith. He walks up to him, and he says, who are you for? 
He's ready to welcome him if he's a friend, and he's ready to engage in battle if he's an enemy. Henry says the bold question with which Joshua accosted him, uh, he did not send a servant but stepped up to him uh, to him himself and asked, are you for us or our adversaries? Which intimates his readiness to entertain him if he were for them and to fight him if he were against him. This shows his great courage and resolution. He was not ruffled by the suddenness of the appearance nor daunted with the majesty and bravery, which no doubt appeared in the countenance of the person he saw, but with a presence of mind that became so great a general, he put this fair question to him. God had bidden Joshua to be courageous, and by this it appears that he was so. For God, by his word, requires of his people, he, do, he does, by his grace, work in them. And we see that here. Here's a guy with a sword, doesn't know who he is. Boom. Who are you? Are you for us or are you against us? Are you with us? Are you against us? There is no neutrality uh, in this war. And then we see the commander of the Lord's army respond. Verse 14, uh, uh, commentators differed on what he meant by no. Some say, did it mean he's not a friend or a foe? Uh, uh, or he's not on neither side, he's the commander of the Lord's army, I don't know. But I think, again, Henry perhaps highlights, not as a friend or foe, but as your commander. I'm the one who is over you. I'm the one who will fight for you. He's the commander of the Lord's army. He uses the covenant name of the Lord there. He is the one who fights for the people. God has said in Deuteronomy, I will fight for you. God has said at the beginning of Joshua, I will be with you. And isn't a blessing and a kindness of God to have this appearance to Joshua by way of a commander just before they enter into battle, that God is going to be with him and fight for him. And we see this affirmation of it by this one who appears. The Lord is on the side of his people and he promised to do, uh, promised that to Joshua. And now here is that further affirmation. And Henry says, here were now, as of old, two hosts, a host of Israelites ready to engage the Canaanites and a host of angels to protect them therein. And he, as captain of both of Israel and the Lord of hosts, or the, the host of Yahweh, conducts the host of Israel and commands the host of angels to their assistance. Perhaps in allusion to this, Christ is called the captain of our salvation and a leader and commander to the people. Those cannot but be victorious that have such a captain. He now came as captain to review the troops, to animate them and give them necessary orders for the besieging of Jericho. I am with you. I fight for you. And I am the commander, not just of Israel, but I'm the commander of the Lord's army, the hosts of heaven, and I have now come. And notice, so notice what Joshua does. Verse 14, and Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Joshua recognizes who this one is. And last time I made the comment kind of hesitantly that it is perhaps the second person of the Trinity. 
regardless, it is God most high appearing to him in the form of the commander of the Lord's army in this war-like figure with a sword drawn, giving the affirmation and confirmation Joshua could use. And Joshua, he bows. He's ready to fight, but he recognizes who he is, and he engages in the proper posture before God. He fell on his face to the earth and worshiped him. The Bible says one does not worship anyone but God alone. And here he is worshiping this one. And he asks, what does my Lord say to his servant? What are the marching orders? What is next? And we see that in chapter 6. But before we even get there, notice in verse 15. And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take your sandal off your foot for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. I hope as we read that, and I hope as you just heard that, your minds go straight to Exodus chapter 3 with the burning bush. God appeared to Moses with that burning bush in that theophany, God appearing, that sensible appearing of God to his people in a special way, just as God did that for Moses, God is doing that for Joshua, just as the promise to Moses was, you will lead my people and bring them out of the land of Egypt, and I will bring them to a land flowing with milk and honey. So here, God is with Joshua. God is with him, and the place where he stands is holy. That is, the promised land has been set apart for God. Jericho is going to be set apart as a, as a first fruits to God. Uh, we see kind of the instructions in verses so uh, one through five of chapter six, verse two, and the Lord said, uh, piggybacking off of what had been said or uh, continuing on with the narrative from verses 13 through 15. But we'll look at that in more detail next week about how they're going to march around. They're going to do something that's a little odd when it comes to military warfare. They're going to march around first and then think the walls are going to fall down after they shout and blow their trumpets and boom, then they're going to run in. And they're going to take it then, but they're going to set this apart for God. And all the spoil is going to be set apart for God. It is holy ground. Joshua is before the holy God, and he's on holy ground in the holy land. The land that was set apart for the people. And before Joshua hears the specific plan, he exhibits the proper posture. I think usually when it comes, even for us, when we enter into the house of the Lord, we ought to come with the proper posture. Davis says, sometimes we need to see that Yahweh is not so much partisan as sovereign. It is more important to recognize God's position than to know God's plan. Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy, and Joshua did so. Now, thankfully, this holy God is a divine warrior, and he is a divine warrior for and with his people. And he still remains the divine warrior because he does not change. One of my favorite motifs in the Bible is this motif, how Christ is the rider in white who's coming to make judgment, how Christ is the one who's going to make his enemies his footstool, how Christ is the one who crushes the head of the seed of the serpent. Christ is our triumphant, conquering king. 
and our triumphant conquering king is with his people and with his church till the end of the age. And his plans cannot be thwarted. His plans cannot fail. All those to whom the father has given to him shall by no wise be snatched from his hand, shall in no wise be cast out. We have a mighty Christ. We have a mighty warrior. And we, the church, are known as the church militant. Lately, I've heard a lot of things about what our church is or is not and the things we need to work on. We need to be more loving. We need to be this, all that sort of stuff. One thing I heard within the past year is our church is a militant church. I'm good with that. We are called the church militant for a reason. Not that we're engaging in with you know, in the world with swords and guns and that sort of thing. But we march on faithfully with the armor of God. We march on faithfully with the word as that double-edged sword. That is our task. That is our marching orders. And as the people of God, it's no surprise in Ephesians 6 uh, that we are called to put on the armor of God. Not only in our church life, but in our Christian life as well. So the two are not always mutually exclusive. And we see that we are to be strong in the Lord. The armor of God passage is not about you being strong in yourself. Who are you strong in? and What are you strong in? You're strong in the Lord and the power of his might. And in chapter 3, he talks about how we are strengthened with might in the inner man by the Spirit. For what purpose? To engage in our Christian life. Our Christian life is one of warfare. It doesn't matter if you're a pastor or a missionary. It is all one of Christian warfare. We have that unholy trinity that's always lurking. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And thankfully, we can stand fast in Christ the Lord, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, who do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. There is a spiritual realm. Now, yes, the spiritual realm works through men. There's doctrines of spirits. Paul speaks about those things. Uh, and so we must be on guard. We must be watchful. And how do we stand when well, we stand in Christ and we stand in the truth? That's why he says in verses 14 and following, girded yourself, gird your waist with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness in Christ, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That's our foundation. Above all, take the shield of faith, trusting in God's promises you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word. Truth, gospel, how do we stand? And notice verse 18, prayer. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints and for me. That the utterance may be given to me, that I may be open, uh, open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador. It is warfare. It requires the strength of Christ. It requires the whole man in the Lord Jesus Christ to engage in our Christian life. And thankfully, brethren, we do so triumphantly in him. Christ has already crushed the head of the serpent. We walk triumphantly 
in him, even as we walk in this present evil age. Christ is the captain of our salvation. Christ is the captain of your salvation. Joshua needed that reminder before he engaged in a literal warfare. It certainly was holy warfare, but it was a literal warfare where there would be swords and spears and bows and arrows. But we need to be reminded of who our captain is and need to be reminded of who we are in him. Now we can stand fast in our Christ as we engage in our Christian warfare. May we trust him and we look to him. May we fear God above all, for Christ is the commander of the Lord's army. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God, thank you for your work to set apart your people. Thank you for the spiritual circumcision. Thank you for Christ, who is our Passover lamb. Thank you for your provision, daily bread, spiritual provision day by day. Thank you. It shows who you are and what you've done for your people, for your grace, for your long suffering, for your promises that cannot be thwarted. Thank you so much for the new covenant uh, that it cannot be breakable. It is not breakable like that old covenant. Thank you that in it, uh, it is inward. It is spiritual circumcision, a circumcision of the heart where for sins are forgiven. Uh, iniquities are remembered no more. Thank you that this is because of Christ and what he has done. And thank you that as your gospel goes forward, this is offered to your elect and your elect come and believe. And as you tarry and wait, your people uh, shall be saved. And thank you for all the benefits that we have because of Christ in the new covenant. Thank you for perseverance and preservation. Thank you for sanctification. And we ask in our Christian walk uh, that we would walk by faith that we would put on the whole armor of God, that we would stand fast in Christ. For there is the world, the flesh, and the devil that we need to be aware of. Help us to be watchful. Help us to be on guard, especially of our own sins. May we be a people that prays. May we be a people that loves your word. May we be a people that is reminded of Christ, who is our captain, who is the one who saved us, who suffered for us, and is bringing many sons to glory. Thank you for his work. Thank you for his suffering. Thank you for his living, dying and rising again, that we might have life in him. Thank you that he reigns now and his church advances and he is making his enemies his footstool and he is filling all in all. And we pray that you would do so in our midst. Please be with us, dwell with us as you promised. Be with each and every one of us as we live our lives. Help us to stand fast, as your word says. I mean, we cling to Christ, our captain, uh, each and every day. So be with us now, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.